From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, this is Religion for Life, religionforlife.com. I'm John Schock. Religion for Life is an educational program about religion, religion, spirituality, social justice, sex, politics, empire, and radical preachers. I think the church was born as a kind of beloved community of resistance. We lost that when Christianity changed from a way of life into a belief system. My guest is the senior pastor of Mayflower Congregational Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, Robin Myers. He's the author of several books with great titles and and great content, too, but the titles are these, Why the Christian Right is Wrong, uh, Saving Jesus from the Church and the Underground Church. In fact, Robin talked with me on the radio a couple of years ago about that book, The Underground Church. His latest book is Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance. He's on the phone with me from the red state of Oklahoma. Welcome, Robin, to uh, Religion for Life. Thanks, John. It's a delight to be on again. This book uh, is the result of your delivering the Lyman Beecher Lectures at Yale in 2013, a pretty impressive gig. Uh, tell us about these lectures and, and what it meant for you to be selected to give them. Well, the Lyman Beecher Lectures are over 150 years old, and they were established by Lyman Beecher in, I think, 1857. Um, uh, this is the uh, uncle of Henry Ward Beecher, the famous abolitionist preacher of the 19th century, whose sister was Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. This is quite a storied family in the sort of the progressive Christian movement of the 19th century, and that's who the lectures are named after. They've normally been given about preaching. Uh, they were, in fact, first called the Lyman Beecher Lectures on Preaching. But as I found out when I did some research, the topic doesn't actually have to be preaching. It can be any topic that's uh, germane to the ministry, so I decided to do them on resistance. And you delivered these in uh, 2013, and this book is the, uh, the text of those lectures. That's correct. I have never uh, actually uh, published a book that is the expanded version of lectures that were obviously written for the ear, their oral experiences, and so it was a kind of a challenge to take lectures and develop them for print, Uh, I added a little bit to each chapter, and I took out some of the references that uh, were sort of made them sound like lectures. Sort of, I bookified them, which is not actually a word, but it should be. Um, And and I that's what that's where the book came from. Bookified them. That's great. And now, was it tempting to put everything you know into these lectures? Yeah, in fact, that's the hardest thing about them. there, you know, the Beecher lectures are. It was such an honor for me to get to deliver them, and and to come from Oklahoma. There's only been one other person to give the Beecher lectures from Oklahoma, and that was Fred Craddock, my beloved, mm. uh, now the late Fred Craddock, uh-huh. my beloved preaching professor. And I wanted to do uh, the best I could, but it's very tempting not to throw everything and the kitchen sink into these lectures. So you have to make sure that they're well honed and there's a strong thesis uh, statement and that you've divided them up in such a way that they're manageable and people aren't just overloaded. So I did, I did the theme was resistance. And, and by that, I mean, faith is not normally conceived of by people as resistance. It's thought of as a belief system. You believe certain things and you, there are certain rewards that come from that either in terms of your personal moral life or in terms of post-mortem 
rewards, you believe certain things, and you go to heaven. More and more in my work, as you know, I think the Church was born as a kind of beloved community of resistance to a lot of things, and we can talk about what some of those things are, but that we lost that when Christianity changed from a way of life into a belief system. Uh, And now I want to sort of go back to the idea that church ought to be a collection of people who identify certain things that are happening in the world that deal death and indignity to people and push back against them, resist them. So I, I divided the lectures up into three parts, resistance to ego, and that is I'm talking primarily the ego of clergy who think of their job as to perform on Sunday morning to applause or popularity. The second is to orthodoxy, and that, as I just mentioned, is resistance to the idea that faith is a belief system when it is, is in fact, a way of life, a radical way of being in the world. And the third was resistance to empire, because we live in an empire, just as the early church found itself in the Roman Empire. We find ourselves in the American Empire, the Pax Americana, This is obviously the most controversial of the three lectures, and I talked about how the Church ought to push back against empire. Well, let's talk about uh, those a little bit more resistance, but I want to talk about another word that you begin each uh, lecture with. The title is Undone. Uh, Undone, faith as resistance to ego. Undone, faith as resistance to orthodoxy. Undone, faith as resistance to empire. Uh, And that's the word you begin with. What do you mean by undone? Yeah, it comes from Soren Kierkegaard. Uh, and Soren Kierkegaard, through Fred Craddock, my teacher, was a real influence on my life, uh, my intellectual and spiritual life. And when Fred Craddock gave the Beecher Lectures in 1978, he used Kierkegaard uh, a, a tremendous amount in those lectures to talk about uh, what he called indirect communication. Um, and I used the idea of Kierkegaard Uh, where he is riding along, if you read any of Kierkegaard's work, he will suddenly interrupt his stream of words and just say, I am undone. And then he'll just go right back to writing whatever it was he was writing. He has these moments when he thinks something has sort of broken through and sort of scrambled him or, 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 or disoriented him, and he referred to it as being undone, which I, I think is fascinating. He's talking about being freed, even if momentarily, from the illusions that we all carry around. In my case, in ter- terms of this book, illusions about what faith is about. So I'm always interested in faith as a subversive activity, that there are moments when we are undone, that is, we are momentarily sort of uh, uncoupled from our illusions about things, and we see clearly for a moment. So that's what the word undone means throughout the book. So undone is kind of, uh, we might think of it uh, almost in a mystical sense. It's uh, a a thin place or where we've been spoken to or grabbed or find our inner voice or something like that. Exactly. Exactly. Uh, And I use the the poetry of a wonderful Polish poet, Anna Kaminska, throughout the book, there's a poem that leads, or that is an integral part of each of the three lectures. She was a Holocaust-era Polish poet, beautiful poet, and each one of the poems has something to do with, as poets are wont to help us 
understand that there are moments of insight that are that are very much like what Kierkegaard meant by being undone, that we we occupy this thin space for a moment. You know, you talk about poetry uh, throughout the lectures there, uh, that we need to hear more poetry in church. Talk, talk more about the, the role of the artist and the poet in helping us uh, become undone and, and become resistant. Well, I think poets uh, have a lot to teach preachers about how to communicate. And the reason I th- I feel that way, and I think preachers ought to read more poetry and incorporate more of it into their sermons, and there should be more poetry in our liturgy on Sunday morning. Poets have no interest in anything. They're not serving any kind of institution. There's nothing sectarian about their work. They're simply trying to use language in its most distilled form, its purest form. And the power of poetry, because of the distilled nature of language, simply isn't captured in most of our everyday conversation or even the way we talk in church most of the time. It's so intense, and it elicits such a strong response from the listener, like all great art does, whether that's visual art or rhetorical art. So I simply think, I simply want preachers in particular, ministers in particular, to read more poetry, not because they need to grab a poem for their sermon or use it as an illustration, but because it feeds their soul to see how powerful words can be when they are used so sparingly and so beautifully. If you're just joining us on Religion for Life, my guest is Robin Myers. He's the senior pastor of Mayflower Congregational Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. Been there for over 30 years. Uh, You dedicate your book uh, to this congregation, uh, and you make a case uh, for long pastorates. Uh, What what have been uh, some of the benefits of a long pastorate for you and your congregation? Well, first of all, I, it's very unusual to be any place for 30 years, oh. particularly, particularly when you're as liberal as I am, and Oklahoma is so conservative. So I have gathered a group of people who appreciate what happens at Mayflower, and, and I've, they've stuck by me for three decades, and they have, I think, helped me to grow. So it's been a mutual uh, effort, uh, but it's absolutely unheard of. Nobody stays in one place 30 years anymore, but I want to tell you, John, the, the depth, the intimacy that is possible because of the trust that is achieved after that long a time is simply impossible to explain or, or to overstate. Um, I'm actually marrying people that I once baptized as children and then baptizing their children. And you just don't get that. I don't think you get that in any other profession. And I've long believed that trust is the most important single factor in successful parish ministry. And if you've been someplace 30 years and you've managed not to blow yourself up or do something really stupid or get yourself fired for one reason or another, there is an awful lot of trust. It's almost palpable. And so you can do a lot of things, just like in a long-term marriage. A husband and wife or partners can simply look at each other They know instantly what the other is feeling because they have years of trust and intimacy that's been built up between them. That's what happens in a long pastorate. That's why I believe in long pastorates, if you can pull it off. You know, the reason I wanted to have you on the program again, um, in part to talk about preaching, is because uh, you 
you offer credibility here. You've been doing it for 30 years, and you've been doing it uh, in a red state and in a, in a congregation, uh, one congregation there, and you've been doing it in a way that just, you know, calling out uh, the, the powers that be. And so uh, I, I, that's why I wanted you on the program here to talk about uh, preaching because uh, of your credibility of the, of the task of what you've done with it. Well, I appreciate that. I, I came to Oklahoma with the intention of building an unapologetically Christian, unapologetically liberal church. And I think that has happened. Um, Oklahoma is not only a very conservative state, I think in a sort of Kierkegaardian way, it's a state that is blinded by illusions about what Christianity is, about how difficult the Sermon on the Mount is, for example, to actually live out, how much confessing we need to do about our role in the violence in the world, about how we talk a good game in church, but we're not actually trying to follow Jesus because that is such a radical thing to do. That's been my whole uh, message for 30 years. And people end up coming to Mayflower on those Sundays when they really need to hear something real, even if that's a little bit risky. So, for example, after the Newtown massacre or after the Paris shootings or now as we have in major political candidates a clearly rising form of fascism in the United States people look to Mayflower to speak those things from the pulpit without flinching and they often will say to me whether they've agreed or disagreed they will often say to me I knew if I came here I would hear something unvarnished. That means a great deal to me, because I don't claim to be always right, but I do claim that I'm going to say what I really feel and believe in the free pulpit that's been given to me. And I think more preachers need to do that, and, and if they did, the church would be a healthier, stronger, and more effective place. Well, you know, you talk about this in the book that uh, we are, uh, your quote is, what happened to the church that uh, once gave the empire fits and now fits right in with the empire. And preachers, of course, uh, are part of the whole empire system. I mean, we all know that you talk about the tax breaks and whatnot, yeah. but, but, but even more than that, just the very culture of being, um, you know, a successful preacher and bringing in the bucks and whatever that might be, that it makes it difficult to... Uh, criticize empire and your case is uh which i think is by example is no there you can speak the truth you can but you have to admit that you're part of the empire too and you're yeah. seduced by it just like everybody else i mean i take this ubiquitous cell phone we all have the smartphone whether you have an app an iphone or whatever you have take it out of your pocket i always tell people when i'm lecturing take it out of your pocket and look at it you, you, you people people say things like I would be lost without my phone, or I would, you know, I'd be nothing without my phone. Well, if, I'm old enough to remember when no one carried a phone around with him except the president of the United States. So it is possible to live without an iPhone. But what you really don't want to confess to is how that phone was made, where it was made, uh, how much the people who put it together were paid, under what conditions they worked. Those things you don't really want to know because they would be an embarrassment to your ethical sensibilities. But all of us love our phones. We love the, the prestige. We love the affluence. We love all the things that empire makes possible for us. And we tend to look away when we 
would otherwise contemplate the violence and the military presence around the world that's necessary to protect the interests that keep our lives the way they are. We don't want those things to change as preachers any more than anybody else does. But if we're not independent contractors for the gospel, then what are we? If we if we can't say what needs to be said and no one else is willing to say, I'm not sure what the point of preaching is. You can go all kinds of places today and get a pep talk, a power positive thinking. You can go to an investment club and figure out how to get rich. You can go to a therapist and deal with your individual problems. None of that, there's nothing wrong with any of that, I guess, some of it bothers me a little bit, but there's nothing on the surface wrong with it. But the gospel, of, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is something considerably more revolutionary and countercultural and risky, dangerous, than any of those other things. And I think that's what the Church has forgotten. We've sort of lost our soul. And we live in a time, John, when if preachers can't tell us that Fear, for example, fear is the enemy of the moral life, and that things that are happening around us are based on fear, that people are terrified of terrorism, they're terrified of not being able to afford their kids to send their kids to college, they're afraid that one illness lands them in the hospital and they lose their house and, their, and everything they've saved for retirement. Those things are making us all afraid. And then there are forces that are capitalizing on that fear. They're telling us, be afraid, be very afraid. And we'll do almost anything to be relieved of that fear. Then you look at the gospel and the two words it says we should consider are fear not. Fear not. And I just don't hear that kind of preaching anymore. And I just think we need more of it. So... And this is where it comes to in many in many cases where it comes down to the the uh, pavement on the street here is uh, as a preacher and we're all complicit in empire. I've got an iPhone too. I've got the tax breaks. So how how and so the immediate thing is is well you can't really say anything about it, preacher, because you're complicit. Right. Well, there is something in the church called confession, and one of the things that people in the pews like to know is that their preacher is also living with some ambiguity and imperfection himself or herself. That's the, that's the start, because that's more authentic human communication. I'm not suggesting that, that I'm planning to, uh, to attack the empire or to say that everything the empire is doing is wrong. I'm saying we're all seduced into the illusion that our empire is acting ethically and morally around the world in pursuit of our foreign policy and our national interests, when in fact we know that's not the case. And that the violence that's arisen in the Middle East, for example, is directly connected, directly connected to the 2003 invasion of Iraq by the United States, which set in motion a downward spiral of violence that's come back to haunt us in the most demonic form possible, and that is ISIS or ISIL. ISIS is the bastard stepchild, I have said this in the pulpit, of our invasion of Iraq and all of the mistakes we made after that, which marginalized the Sunnis and then left them weapons, first the weapons from the Iraqi army that we fired, and then the American weapons when we pulled out. And then Maliki, our puppet president uh, in, in Iraq, 
locked the Sunnis out of the new government and killed them when, when they tried to, to enter through nonviolent means. And they, so a group of the most radical, angry young men formed something more terrifying than we could even imagine, which was this return to the Middle Ages to establish a caliphate. And they're now taking over large sections of the Middle East. If we don't confess our role in making that happen, we're being intellectually dishonest and spiritually bankrupt. Robin Myers is the senior pastor of Mayflower Congregational Church in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, and he's on with me talking about uh, his book, Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance, and you're meddling into politics, preacher. <laughs> well, here's the thing. I, I want to say this to any preacher who's listening. The idea that you can separate uh, politics from the pulpit, or what people say, no politics from the pulpit, preacher, that's an impossible request. Now, it is, of course, possible to, to take par- partisan politics out of the pulpit, and you should. The idea that you know who to vote for, or God knows who you should vote for, or God's a Democrat or a Republican, all of that's absurd. But my definition of politics is who has the power, how is it exercised, and to what effect. Because there are no victimless political crimes. Everything we do in public life, the bills that we pass, the laws that we make, affect the people for whom Christ died. So I will get out of politics in my preaching as soon as politics has no effect on the people I love. Empire. Let's talk about empire. Some people are offended by the word uh, comparing uh, the United States of America uh, to uh, empires of the past, but you make a case that uh, the United States uh, and all of the corporate, uh, global corporate uh, business here is is an empire. Can you talk about that? Sure. Uh, And I understand why people would be offended by what they call the E word. They don't even want to call it an empire. President Obama doesn't even like calling America an empire, and and has said so. But we have uh, a military presence in 146 countries. We have thousands of troops deployed around the world. We engage in preemptive war, that is, war fought to save us from something we think might happen if we don't wage that war, which is a, a really... I mean, we really are guilty of war crimes sometimes in that regard. We prop up dictators that serve us, and then we try to bring them down when they no longer serve us. We do all kinds of things that are classic empire behavior. For us not to admit that we are the world's only superpower and a colossus astride the planet is, again, dishonest. We are the Pax Americana. Now, it's not that everything we do is bad. It's not that everyone serving in the military is bad. I'm not saying that. I don't say that in the book. I'm saying we have to admit that our strength, our overwhelming military advantage, tempts us to immoral behavior and to use of the military for things that have no military solution but only have diplomatic solutions. And we are at the end of a decade of some horrendous mistakes that are classic empire behaviors, you know, that we would rattle the sword and tell people they should fear us or they'll be in It hasn't worked. It hasn't worked. And we're at this very critical moment when we have to decide, are we a great nation or just a very large country? Those are not the same things. Meanwhile, we have crumbling roads and bridges. We have terrible schools. We have tremendous public health, mental health, substance abuse problems at home. 
and we continue to drain the treasury maintaining this enormous force on behalf of the empire now this is very biblical this is not just the rantings of some liberal this is what's in the bible from the first word to the last word is this struggle what kind of god do we worship what kind of society should we be and what does it mean to be powerful because in the christian church power is an inversion you know because uh, uh, God in his weakness, not God in his strength, is what finally saves us. Our power is made perfect in, and I always pause when I'm lecturing, and the audience says, weakness, weakness. So it's an inversion. It's an upside-down gospel, and the empire operates by the rules of empire. All empires have operated by those rules, and they're certainly not the rules of the gospel. Well, you know, I think it was uh, John Dominic Cross, and you quote him in the book, but I'm thinking of a quote that he made that uh, as Christians we follow um, Jesus, who was crucified by empire. So what does it mean to follow Jesus today? Right. Well, that's that's a good question. It would mean we would imitate those same behaviors that got Jesus killed, (laughs) which is is why pastors are somewhat reluctant. I mean, (laughs) all of us are. I mean, how far do I want to go personally, because I have a family, I have a wife and three children, and now two granddaughters to take care of? Do I want to spend uh, too much time in jail? Do I want to possibly get killed because I step out too far against empire and someone says, well, then you're not a patriot, you're not a true American, you should leave? This is something we are wrestling with as preachers all the time. But what I'm urging preachers to do is to, within the context of the trust they have in a congregation, confess to the people listening that they are very troubled. I mean, if you're not troubled right now by things that are being said and reported in the media about deporting immigrants, building a wall along the southern border of the United States, and saying the United States is closed to Muslims, which is a complete violation of the Constitution and everything we stand for. If you're not worried about that now, when would you be worried? And my sermon this past Sunday was all about the fact that I never say never anymore. I remember when Ronald Reagan was running against Jimmy Carter, and I made this matter-of-fact statement to my in-laws, Ronald Reagan can never be elected. And they said, why? And I'd just gotten out of seminary and thought I was really smart. I said, because a divorced B-movie actor with a dysfunctional family will never be elected over a a born-again Baptist Sunday school teacher from Plains, Georgia, in a country yearning for a return to traditional family values. Thus saith the preacher. (laughs) I got a big laugh when I said that, and then I looked at the congregation and I said, I never say never anymore. I never say never And I read the 14 characteristics that fascism is rising in any country that I published in Why the Christian Right is Wrong. And you can literally hear the congregation gasp at the end of that list, because every single one of them are present in the United States. And that's all made possible by fear. Fear, fear is the father of fascism. The more frightened we are, the more we are willing to give up if someone will protect us. And for the love of God, we need to resist. Indeed we do. 
Robin Myers has been my guest on Religion for Life. Pick up his latest book, uh, Spiritual Defiance, Building a Beloved Community of Resistance. Robin, thank you for, uh, for your work and for this book, for being with me today. John, always a pleasure. Thank you for having me. You can find a podcast of this program and of all the shows at religionforlife.com. That's religionforlife.com. Get podcasts each week from iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Religion for Life is free to radio stations and is produced at KBOO Portland. I'm John Schuck. Be well.